Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. During our program today, we're going to look at the critical topic of the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now as we continue in our series, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. to think of examples that you have heard of people who act in order to save others. Medical doctors who travel to West Africa in order to save people from Ebola. In 2011, Daryl Starnes climbed into a burning car to rescue a woman after a car accident pulled her out. I know of a man who donated a part of his liver in order to save his mother-in-law. I once had a lengthy conversation with a man who had just sold his business at an astonishing profit, and he told me that he was now giving the rest of his life to establish and manage a trust fund in which he would find worthy causes in which he could give away his money, all that he had earned in a lifetime. I wonder how you feel about such acts of kindness. I'm not alone when I feel admiration and gratefulness. In each case, the person mentioned is a kind of savior. Now imagine that someone else decided to take credit for what these saviors had done. So, for instance, the woman pulled from her burning car actually retells the story about her own heroic efforts to flee from the car, never mentioning the person who pulled her out. How would you feel about that person? I bet you would feel ungratefulness and egotism are key failings of this person. And when we see those traits in someone, especially when those traits override an act of grace, we find it most disturbing. Now, I'm going to make a shocking statement. We've all done that in relationship to the Holy Spirit. Whereas most believers are willing to acknowledge that God the Father planned their salvation from eternity past, and Jesus implemented their salvation through his shed blood on the cross, when it comes to our actual conversion story, we're like my mythical story of a woman who was rescued from a burning car without mentioning the one who pulled her out. We tell the story of our conversion by explaining our story, the struggles we had, the gospel we considered, the people who influenced us, and even the moment we bowed our knee and surrendered to Christ without ever mentioning the Holy Spirit. So let's learn to retell our story by mentioning what he's done. Let's start at the very beginning. According to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, before we met Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Let the word dead have its full effect. Imagine staring into the coffin of someone who has just passed away and explaining to him or her that life is better than death. And wouldn't they just love to live and make a personal choice to live? The response to such a conversation, well, that'd be a one-way conversation. The dead person is unresponsive and does not hear what you say. I think this is an illustration that is not too extreme. Please understand that this is classic Christianity, so much so that those who call themselves Arminian and those who call themselves Reformed have a complete agreement on this point. Both have argued that human beings aren't just actively rejecting Christ, but that all fallen human beings are incapable of hearing and believing, and it is on the basis of their spiritual death that they are unresponsive to Christ. We are dead in trespasses and sins. I want us to imagine Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus, and he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Imagine later Lazarus tells his story by stating that he had come to a personal decision to reject death and choose life. And all would have laughed at him. Christ's power had raised him. He was incapable of such a decision. 
Someone might say, but didn't I have a choice when I confessed my sins and surrendered to Christ? And the answer is, of course you did. But how did it come to be that your will, dead to God, responded to Christ? It's this that makes Luke's description of Lydia's conversion in Acts 16, verse 14, seem so eye-opening. Luke simply says, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. But how does this work? How is a dead heart given life? Many of us remember how Ezekiel the prophet describes what he sees coming when he speaks of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey all my rules. In other words, the willingness to walk according to the statutes, God gets credit to two things. First, the father does surgery, taking a stone-dead heart and transforms it into a responsive one. And then second, the Holy Spirit enters into that heart and causes that heart to find the command of the Father and the Son to repent and to believe to be the loveliest command we have ever heard. And when this is done, we make a decision and say, yes, Lord, I have heard you, and I gladly, for the sake of the cross, abandon all things and throw myself unreservedly upon your grace. But of course, we are not at that moment aware of the drama that has been played out. We are aware of our struggle with God. We are aware of God's great love for us expressed in the cross of Jesus, but we are not aware of how it is that we found the cross our reason for hope. It is only later that we realize that it was what the Holy Spirit has done. And here is the greatest tragedy. Some Christians never become aware of the miracle of their salvation, always taking credit for that which was born in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. According to John 1.13, all of us who were born again, and here I quote directly from this verse, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did you hear that? Not of the will of man, but of the will of God. Just like human birth, none of us chose to be born. That choice was made by our parents. So also, it is the will of God that brings us the new birth. Now, I don't want to give the impression that only the Holy Spirit was involved in this matter. Ephesians 2.5 said that God made us alive, speaking in reference to the Father. And 1 Peter 1.3 tells us that according to his abundant mercy, he has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But let's be clear. Jesus himself refers to our conversion, our new birth, as according to John 3 verse 8, being born of the Spirit. Now, here again, we've come to a major issue at our salvation. The Father planned our salvation. The Son implemented our salvation. But without the work of the Holy Spirit, no one person would have believed and been saved. We would all have rejected the message. Do you think you are morally superior to those who reject Christ? Well, you are not. For we were all dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus said that unless one is born of the Spirit, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me give you one Bible example. You remember Acts 10, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius and his family are gathered to hear what Peter will say to them. 
Peter tells them the gospel. And then, according to Acts 10.44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, for those of you who are tracking with me, you might have been amazed to hear that both Arminians and those in the Reformed camp describe the biblical doctrine of conversion in exactly these terms. So where do they disagree? And the answer is, they disagreed on whether this call from the Holy Spirit was resistible or irresistible. But without getting into the details of this matter, for it takes us far beyond our present discussion, I, by the way, think it was an irresistible call, but we should note that for those of us who see this as irresistible, we still argue that people make a willing and voluntary choice to follow Christ. But for our purposes, I have wanted to paint a picture of the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. The same Holy Spirit who breathed life into all living things and gave them life, breathed life to our dead heart, and because of his breath, we turned and believed. So let me return to one of my themes in this series of the Holy Spirit. It's time for us to recapture an understanding of the Holy Spirit. So many of us have a doctrine of salvation that has no place for the Spirit. And instead of telling the story of him rescuing us from the burning car, we have pushed him out of the story and have retold the story of our heroic efforts to rescue ourselves from certain judgment. It's time we become aware of the Trinity in our salvation. The Father planned our salvation. The Son implemented our salvation. And the Holy Spirit affected our salvation. And without all three members of the Trinity, not one of us would have been saved. We didn't think up this salvation, we didn't pay the penalty for our sins, and we certainly didn't see the advantage of our salvation. God did it all. God makes it clear he will not share the glory or the credit for our salvation with us, making us in some fashion the heroes of this story. For he gets the glory from front to back, from beginning to end. Far be it from us to boast in any other thing than what God has done on our behalf. You know, I remember some years ago praying with a middle-aged Iranian man who had just surrendered his life to Christ, and, and I said, I wanted to pray for him. And he said, please do. And so I placed my hands on him and prayed a prayer that went something like this. I prayed, Father, thank you for choosing this brother unto life before eternal ages began. And Son of God, thank you for laying down your own life to pay the awful penalty for his sins so he can be forgiven. And Holy Spirit, thank you for removing his stone cold heart and thank you for giving life so that he could respond to the message. And then this dear Iranian brother shouted, he said, stop. I looked up and tears were flowing down his cheeks and he said, I can hardly take it all in. Indeed, so it should be with all of us. Back by popular demand, Back to the Bible Canada is announcing our second Israel Experience Tour scheduled for May 2018. There's plenty of time to plan for this trip to the Promised Land, a trip of a lifetime. Join the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Lathagain's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests, and much more. The initial Israel Experience was a sold-out tour. In fact, an additional coach was added. So although it's a year away, now is time to register register and avoid disappointment. Join us in Tiberias, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Mount of Beatitudes, the village of Nazareth, the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Masada, Qumran, the Dead Sea, and the list goes on. And at each location, be inspired by the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. Check out all the details today at backtothebible.ca or call us for more at 1-800-663-2425. Thank you.
want us to notice several things that began in that moment in which the Holy Spirit breathed life into us. First, we are to understand that a miracle has occurred. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. In other words, for the first time we are given to understand or form an appreciation for the things of God. A hunger after God is birthed in us. Jesus spoke that way about the work of the Spirit. In John 16, 14, he speaks of the Holy Spirit and he says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. From this passage, we can see what many Bible teachers call the self-effacing work of the Holy Spirit. Instead of shining the spotlight on himself, the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Christ. And the effect in those who have received the Holy Spirit is that they become conscious of the work of the Father in the ministry of Jesus and find this work to be holy and completely satisfying. The mark of the Spirit is that we speak much of Jesus, that we make much of Jesus, that we find confidence in Jesus, and that we wish to tell others of Jesus. We want to see Jesus glorified. Now, all of this is called the work of regeneration. While the heart lies dead, no life of Christ enters. And when the Spirit awakens the heart, we find in Christ all that we need. And in this, we have become a new creation. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us, the old has passed away and the new has come. Yes, we struggle with sin, but there has been an awakening in us that finds Jesus and his gospel ultimately satisfying. We find sin now to be utterly sinful, and we find the life of Christ now to be utterly desirable. And with this new set of desires comes a warfare with the flesh that will ultimately result in the defeat of the old nature. Think about what happens to us now that we have been born again or regenerated. We trust in Christ for our salvation. We love the Bible, for we find it has been inspired by the same Holy Spirit who has regenerated us. We love to worship. We seek to obey Christ and find his commands a delight rather than a burden. And we have become alive to his spiritual reality. I remember having a conversation with a young woman shortly after her conversion, and she described nature to me. She talked about the birds and other things. And then she told me she never realized that everything around her was created by the God who loved her. And she now began to see that this world was her father's world. She said, I never knew the world was so utterly beautiful. See, this consciousness of God in all things is the work of the Holy Spirit who has awakened our hearts to the things of God. Now, there's so much more that can be said about this, but I find that all of this ultimately leads every believer to something we call sanctification. It simply means growth into holiness. Since the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, we can assume that his presence in the life of every believer is an increasing revulsion of sin and an ever-increasing appetite for purity. I mean, think about it this way. At the very beginning of your Christian life, there already was birthed in you a holiness that came from the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, Paul says, And he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Similar words are said in 1 Corinthians 6.11. There Paul speaks of all the evil practices that used to be a part of our lives before we came to Christ. And then speaking of our conversion, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified. There's our word. 
and he speaks about an action that has already been done. You were sanctified. And then he says, this happened in the name of Jesus, that is, on the basis of Christ's authority. And then he adds, and by the Spirit of our God. The Spirit of holiness has been placed into us by the Holy Spirit. This is why 1 John tells us that we just can't go on sinning after we come to Christ. That is, we just can't stay comfortable with sin. I mean, we may sin at times, but we are now bound and determined to fight against sin until it is utterly conquered. This is true of everyone who is born of the Spirit. I know there are those who have prayed the sinner's prayer and have not experienced this, but that only means that they have done a religious duty but have not been born of the Spirit. Being born of the Spirit and turning our backs on sin and Satan is evidence of the Spirit in our lives. Now, let's take the matter further. Every believer finds that as they go through life, more and more, they gradually begin to conquer some of the sinful practices of their life. Let me get a little personal here and tell a bit of my own story. You know, I was 18 years old when I came to Christ. And at that time, I thought, you know, if, if only I could win the war over profanity, rash words, and drinking, I could be holy. These things seemed to me like spiritual mountains to climb. And, and if I climbed them, I thought, man, I would have arrived. And to my utter surprise, those battles lasted shorter than I had imagined. But to my even greater surprise, I found out that those small victories were small victories indeed. Pride, unbelief, self-centeredness, a spiritual dullness in which I did not have the interest in spiritual things that I might have had. These things were the real mountains. The others were just the small foothills leading me on to the real battle. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There is in this passage the idea that there is a spiritual growth in every true believer that goes on for a lifetime. I don't want to give the impression that there are not reversals along the way. Every believer has times in his or her life when it seems like they're not growing or when old sins that seem at one point in time to have been conquered suddenly rear up again. Furthermore, there are believers who have struggled with certain habitual sins that are very difficult to break. And in the midst of these struggles, we do well not to despair. It was the old Puritan John Owen who reminded us that God could take all sin propensity away in a second, but sometimes he allows us to struggle with certain sins so that we will not be arrogant but will continually confess humbly to our God how needy we are of him. And even though we may suffer reversals at times, and the struggle against the flesh and the world and the devil may seem harder than we ever thought, we are being led by the Holy Spirit to a gradual growth in holiness in which we are being transformed to be more like Christ all the time. See, the promise in the Bible is that this transformation will be complete when at death We are finally glorified. The day will arrive when our struggle with this world will end, when we will be presented before Christ without spot or wrinkle, when we will actually know what it is to do all things to the glory of God, without even the slightest influence of our old sinful nature, and how we long for that. But in the meantime, we do not lose heart. I mean, let me get very personal with you. If you 
on this day are finding your struggle with sin overwhelming, don't lose heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 that our inner self is being renewed every day. You know, as we continue on in this series, we will see the necessity of believers to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that we can't win this battle alone. We will learn that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. At times, we will sense the Holy Spirit arresting our sinful tendencies, but we will also sense his drawing us to be like Christ. So what have we learned? While we acknowledge the real struggle we all have to learn to be obedient to Christ in all things, we also learn that none of this would be possible were it not for the Holy Spirit taking initiative. All that we become in Christ is due to him. For this reason, we're grateful for the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. John, your message today brings up so many questions in my mind, Uh, but one would be about the whole issue of pride. Allowing the Holy Spirit to take credit for our salvation should really deal with the issue of pride, shouldn't it? Yeah, I think it really does. We owe to God an infinite debt of gratitude to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And so when we thank the Holy Spirit for our salvation, um, it really does bring us to the place of humility. I'm coming to say to God, yeah, the Holy Spirit gave me the willingness to turn to you. What a wonderful thing that is. And I guess to build on that, I guess the other issue that we have to deal with is the whole idea of works, that we can't work for our salvation either. Yeah, the issue of works is central to our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because as long as we say there is still something of myself involved in my salvation, then I'm going to say that my salvation involved some work of mine. So I'm going to say that my willingness to respond to Christ, and yes, I really did have to choose for Christ, but who gave me the willingness to choose? Now, if I say I found it within myself, I am giving credit to myself for my salvation, and any credit that I add to myself is in fact a work that I have accomplished that has earned my salvation for me. So for some of us, our own choices are like a work in our own mind. Unless I've worked in this fashion, you know, I can't be saved. But to give all credit to the Holy Spirit is to really rid ourselves of all works doctrine and say, everything in my salvation, uh, everything from my choosing to say yes to Jesus uh, to my actual walk in Christ after that, everything came as a result as a gracious gift from the Holy Spirit of which I can claim no credit whatsoever. How important it is for us to, to grasp that, to wrestle with that, and to finally continually say, everything is grace, all is grace, grace, grace. Thanks so much for that message, John. Join us again tomorrow, back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Just a reminder that our first 2017 issue of Truth in Life magazine is available this month, so you'll want to subscribe now to ensure you receive your very own copy of our bi-monthly ministry magazine. The February issue is focused on relationships. How do we honor God in our relationships? And for 2017, we'll have two new featured articles, one based on your questions arising from our new Truth in Life Today program, and another by Pastor Ray Duick, sharing a pastoral response to the specific theme of the current magazine. 
These articles, along with regular features from Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, our Bible reading plan, and so much more. So don't miss out. Request while quantities last. You can receive your free subscription of Truth and Life by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.